This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Hello everybody, Greg Dieter here with another edition of It Was a Thing on TV for the Place to Be Nation pop feed. First, we're going to be going back to school this week with two back-to-school-related episodes. First, we have legendary NFL quarterback Joe Namath trying his hand at a sitcom in The Waverly Wonders. And then we go animated, where a bookish girl and a jock are selected to attend a high school in space in Galaxy High School. And then to honor the anniversary of the original premiere of Star Trek this month, we go to a series involving one of the Star Trek captains in a really awful spin-off for the Columbo franchise. That's right. We're talking about Captain Janeway herself, Kate Mulgrew, in Mrs. Columbo. So now, let's get on with Drop. An anthology about the bad, the short-lived, and the forgotten shows and events in television history. This is It Was a Thing on TV. Before I change my mind! I give you Super Train! Oh, Episode 405, submission number 357, The Waverly Wonders. The Waverly Wonders ran on NBC from September 7th to October 6th. 1978 for nine episodes, an astonishing six of which went unaired. Now, hold on a second. Nine episodes. That's seven less than the number of episodes of the Hudson Brothers Razzle Dazzle show. Uncle Croc's Block, J.J. Starbuck, and the number of aired episodes of Salvage One. And the number of aired episodes of Schooled. Maybe uh, in the next week or so, I should go through all the previous episodes and see how many shows had exactly 16 episodes. That seems to be the sweet spot. You know, sweet 16. Well, oh, that's clever. No, I was looking at it from the aspect of, let's make this intro to all our shows like seven minutes long as Mike rattles off every show in the history of television that had 16 episodes. Now, Chica, what year did this air? 1978. This is, by my count, the 14th show we've covered from 1978. Holy. Yeah. So do you want to know what some of the others were? Flying High Def... Carter Country would have been 78. Um... Or at least it ran in 78. Maybe it started in 77. No, Carter Country aired in 77. Well, it debuted in 77. It definitely aired in 78. Yeah, but I mean, starting in 78. Right, okay. Right. I want to say Blansky's Beauties was on that list. No, it's not. Oh, dang it. Okay, uh, Tic-Tac-Doe, the uh, CBS version, was definitely 78. I don't have that listed on there. Well, we talked about all the, the Tic-Tac-Doe versions that weren't, uh, well, necessarily hosted by Wink, but we did refer to that. Yeah, but it doesn't really count towards the subject, so I didn't include it on the uh List of shows we've covered. The 1978 Science Fiction Film Awards. I'm a rocket man. 
Japanese Spider-Man. Spider-Man. The Star Wars Holiday Special. Oh, of course. Jason of Star Command. Jeopardy 78. Superdome. And now, the theme music based on what we could call from the internet. Greg, I figured you'd be looking forward to uh, part two of our three-part Back to School 2023 special because we get to talk about one of your favorite players of all time. Number 12 for the New York J-E-T-S Jets, Jets, Jets. Broadway Joe Namath. First off, my favorite Jets player of all time is Curtis Morton. Thank you very much. Now, Broadway Joe Namath, he was the guy that led the famous guarantee in Super Bowl three against Baltimore. And you all know what happened. One finger in the air, everything. And also in the Super Bowl three highlight film, Steve Sable putting footage of a meaningless Johnny Unitas garbage time drive to make sure that the Colts were mounting a big comeback when the game was already over. I was still upset that the AFL won. You see, I had been a Colts fan all my life, and in my version of the game, I played a little fast and loose with the facts. All the hopes and dreams of an entire season rested on the shoulders of one man, one old pro. One last moment for the master. I took a meaningless fourth quarter Colt drive and then I cut it as if it were this heroic charge by Johnny Unitas who was giving that upstart Joe Namath a lesson in quarterback. Well, in reality, New York had the game locked up by then, but I just couldn't bring myself to giving the Jets the big finale that their upset really deserved. So even though this apology is a little late in coming, I want to say to the Jets, I blew it. I'm sorry. I was an NFL guy, and I just didn't make an accurate and objective film. So there. And you know something? That could have been the end of his legendary career. But it wasn't. And fun fact, not many people know this. Joe Namath did not end his career in New York. He ended his career with the Los Angeles Rams, who became the St. Louis Rams, who turned back into the Los Angeles Rams. Now, do you remember who replaced Joe Namath as QB of the Jets? No, sir, I do not. Mike, do you know? Oh, gosh, I couldn't even give you a guess. Richard Todd. Who'd that guy be? Of course you wouldn't know who Richard Todd was, Chica. He was like probably from like after he retired to like 83, 84 when Ken O'Brien took over. But funny enough, Richard Todd also went to the University of Alabama. From Namath to Todd, like from like the mid 60s to like the mid 80s, they had two quarterbacks from Alabama. Weird. We figure, or at least Joe Namath figures, while he's, you know, living his best life, the pride and joy of Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, fresh off of his Super Bowl champion career, and not at all falling off the face of the earth, 
Why doesn't he just stick around Los Angeles and see what opportunities pop up? Well, opportunities, there were many. We're talking about a legendary seminal episode of The Brady Bunch. We're talking about two appearances on Rowan and Martin's Lappin. And a movie career that included such films as The Last Rebel and CC and Company. He was actually a lead role in CC and Company. Now, let's also remember Joe Namath was apparently up for the hosting role on Family Feud in 1988. When he was done with football, the world was literally his oyster. So what is going to be the big thing that will begin Joe Namath's next chapter? You would think it would be sitting beside Dick Enberg going over the great games to be played that afternoon. You would think this. But no, that job was probably occupied by Farber Murphy. Did I mention the Avalanche Express? Because that's the one that put Joe Namath out there post-career. But before Avalanche Express, he had to stop off at a fictional high school in Eastville, Wisconsin. A fictional high school called Waverly High School. And what would he be doing? At Waverly High School. Coaching football? You would think that. But no. He would be a history teacher and a basketball coach? What? Not with his knees. (laughs) It gets better. The team he is coaching has four players... Remember, a basketball team is five players with a second line on the bench and then a third line for garbage time. But they only had four players and one of them was a girl. (gasps) She's a witch! To review, Joe Namath is a history teacher and a basketball coach of a four-person basketball team, and one of the persons is a lady. And this was before Hang Time on NBC. Oh, great, we get an excuse to mention Reggie Theus again. Hey, did you know he was on Just Men in 1983? You know who else was on Just Men in 1983? The man who committed so many unsolved murders in New York City, who I now have his autograph of. Are we talking about Steve Sachs? Yes, we are. Uh, That's a good thing he got out of Springfield, isn't it? That, in and of itself, is the joke and the gist of the series. And if it sounds like a clone of Welcome Back, Cotter... It is because it is indeed a clone of Welcome Back, Connor. Oh. Now, from what I understand, per the extent of our research, Joe Namath was actually 
a decent actor. And if you put a decent actor in a decent role, surround himself with decent people and decent production and decent scripts, you're going to get a decent show. But come on, this is NBC in 1978. Three shows returning from the previous season. They're in third place, and they have to get to at least second place? So they're like, okay, what is the most popular sitcom on television in 1978? What if the smartest people in the room said, welcome back, Cotter? So NBC said, you know what? Let's clone Welcome Back, Cotter. People will watch it. Joe Namath plays Joe Casey, a washed-up professional basketball player who now teaches history at Waverly High School in Eastville, Wisconsin, while coaching the basketball team, the Waverly Torpedoes, a.k.a. the Waverly Wonders. The Waverly Torpedoes? That sounds like something Scotty would say. Fire the Waverly Torpedoes! And if his team didn't have much going for it, neither did Joe. Because Joe don't know much about history, don't know much about teaching, don't know much about anything except basketball. In fact, the only decent person on the lot was Connie. And she was a girl. But together... They may just win more than one game this season, and Joe may just learn a little bit more about history and himself. Of course, he's going to have to ask for the help of the Italian stallion, Tony Faguzzi. Hey, I'm Tony Faguzzi. Where's some good pizza in Wisconsin? Nerdy athlete John Tate... Freddy Boom Boom Washington clone Hasty Parks, and of course, the only decent player on the entire team, Connie Rafkin. Rounding out the crew of Waverly High is fellow teacher, man by the name of George Benton, and the school principal and potential love interest, Linda Harris. So let's talk about the cast, shall we? We obviously have Joe Casey, played by Joe Namath, originally written as a man named Harry Casey for Larry Hagman, believe it or not. wonder what ever happened to him in 78. Well, he got launched into space and landed in Texas somewhere, I'm guessing. He didn't go to space in 78. No, but he did go to space in his career. Playing John Tate is Charles Bloom. He was a that guy from That Thing, having logged in one after-school special, one episode of Eight is Enough, one episode of Battlestar Galactica, and one episode of Mork and Mindy. Among other things, including the misadventures of Sheriff Lobo. I miss Sheriff Lobo. Who doesn't? Playing the Italian stallion Tony Faguzzi, Joshua Grenrock, who you would probably remember as Porter in an episode of Firefly, 
among other things. I just think, wow, the Italian stallion and who the name of it was played by. That's like, does not sound like Italian stallion. He was also in. I'm sorry. Oh, time out. Time out. interrupted. I think she might have reacted too when she heard Italian stallion and the name Joshua. Oh, what? Well, Joshua Grunrock. Yeah, that's his name. This sounds like a fake character on the Flintstones. It does. And this was actually his first role. From then he springboards into Eight is Enough, Cagney and Lacey, Nightmares, if you remember that far back. I don't... Yeah, that's a springboard, all right. Jeez. But he was on an episode of Monk, Greg. Oh. Now, guys, as we found out, 105 episodes ago, I mentioned for the first time ever that I loved Wings, and it made Tony Shalhoub's career. Yeah, I seem to forget that. That warms the cockles of my heart. It's been a long time since we had a reference to Tony Shalhoub and Wings. And then playing Hasty Parks, we have Tier Turner who graduated from Waverly High and landed a career as a stuntman in such films as 2014's Godzilla, Super 8, Volcano, and 2009's Star Trek. Oh, yes, because as we all like to mention, the 2009 Star Trek had Robert Pine's kid, and also a guy who likes to slap people. But it seems like his longest stretch as an actor was 13 episodes of The Cop and the Kid in 1975. What the hell is that? I don't know. Was it a biography about Wander Franco? Oh, no, he was in The Cop. Oh, God, no! <laughs> hey, we have the timely jokes. We did the twoies last week. Now we're doing Wander Franco... Let's keep the hits going, guys. And then we have, as Connie Rafkin, a young Kim Langford. You remember her best as Ginger Ward on four seasons of Not Landing. Who was she? Ginger Ward, I just said. Who was her character? Ginger Ward. It was from 1970. It was, that was before it got really good. Hold on. I didn't know that Kiesel was such an expert on Knott's Landing. <laughs> Wait, Greg says he didn't know that you were an expert on Knott's Landing. I'm pretty good on Knott's Landing. Do you remember when Alec Baldwin was on Knott's Landing? The only one that I don't know Jack about was Talking Crest. Hold on. Hold on. Did you know that Simon McCorkendale was on Falcon Crest, Kiesla? She did not know anything about Falcon Crest. She doesn't know Jack Poopy nothing. She now didn't did, know Simon did, McCorkendale was on Falcon Crest. I did know that. Oh, she did know that. Okay. Now, Kiesla, do you... Kiesla, I gotta ask you something. Hold on, Greg is asking you something, Kiesla. I want her to come in. Hold on a second. All right, Kies, Kies. Okay, she's she can't get up. What's the question? What's the question? Kiesla, I want you to come here quick. She can't get up. She can't get up. She's resting. okay. Okay. Would you want to own this picture right here of Simon McCorkendale holding the Falcon? 
Okay, I'm showing her the sainted photo of Simon McCorkendale and the Falcon. Do you want? Would yeah. you want? Would you? McCorkendale was on Falcon Crest. No, this is Simon <laughs> McCorkendale as Manimal. Oh, I remember him as Manimal. Yeah, what's, but, now, what's the question? Would you want to own this picture? The... Would you want to own this picture? It's only because it's so old. Yeah. Wouldn't you want to have this hanging on your, like, your wall and just show up everybody? Hey, I got a picture of Simon McCorkendale on Man. Is that the girl we were talking about a second ago? Kim Langford, yeah. I remember her, but I don't remember who what her character was. Ginger Ward, we said this! I don't remember, I'm saying... Just short-term memory issues running the Alexander household? <laughs> oh my gosh! Okay, well, no, wait, hold on. I think we need an answer to the, the question. Do you want... A copy of that image and you're going to hang it on your wall there's a reason why i'm asking do you want a copy of the picture to hang on your wall suitable for framing thanks but no thanks but no okay greg congratulations you just got your christmas gift <laughs> i saw it said retail me not so i'm guessing i can purchase a copy of that okay so playing Awkward transition! Yeah, yeah, whatever. Playing George Benton, Ben Piazza. I'm getting in before Greg says any relation to Mike Piazza. Oh, that's a shame. I knew you're you're just so predictable. I just wanted to cut you off of the pass. He was in five episodes as Dr. Charles Hampton on Dynasty in 1988. <laughs> Ben Piazza. Ben Piazza. Ben Piazza. He's a looking for a good pizza in Wisconsin. No longer with us, sadly. Yeah. I want to see a picture. Uh, ben Piazza. There he is. He's right there. Mm, I don't remember him. He was in the Blues Brothers mask, guilty by suspicion. If I could see a, a picture of him doing something, I might remember. We'll see. Keith, so how do you like this background I got right here? The gray background? No, this background. The <laughs> zoom background. It looks like mug shots. That's exact that's the joke. But oh. what does it say? That, look at it. That looks like a bunch of mug look look shots. look at the caption, Keith. The Fulton County Squares. <laughs> hey, scroll down. I want to see who else is in it. Uh, I can't I scroll can't. down. I'll give you a hint, okay? Rudy's up top on the... Rudy Giuliani's supposed to be Charlie Weaver. I don't see him up there. All I see is... Okay, I'll just put you're the just damn gonna, image... You're just, gonna, you're just gonna have to trust us on this. Okay, this damn a, it, I'm gonna have to put the damn image in... Uh, Baker Street Irregulars. <laughs> okay, Trump's it's square. in the chat on Zoom. Just look at the picture. And... I see him. Oh, I mean, no, no, see uh, the hold picture. on, let me, let, me open the, let me open the chat here. Yes. I think I've seen it on the uh, internet, his mugshot. Yeah, but nobody's ever done the uh, Hollywood Squares version of that. Oh, okay. But should we tell her our master plan of getting Shadow Stevens to do an open for that? Oh, yeah, we should. Keith, do you want to know our master plan? Sure. We're going to try to pay Shadow Stevens $100 on Cameo to do a version of the Hollywood Squares opening with like all the prisoners that got arrested. Do you think he'll do it? For a hundred dollars? hundred dollars? I'd do it. How badly does he need the money? I would totally do it. 
I do shit. I do it for free. <laughs> looks good. Looks good. Looks good. Looks good. Looks good. Oh, it 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 looks good. Looks good. Okay, so let's talk about romance. Ooh. Because Joe isn't just in this for the love of education and the love of sport. He's looking to get him a little sum-sum. Oh, he's going to have a Susie Colbert incident 26 years early. No, Greg. Okay, so Linda Harris, the principal of Waverly High, played by Gwen Guilford, who was in six episodes of Chips, Eight episodes of A New Kind of Family. And also, and this is her last credited role, Mrs. Winston in 1987's Masters of the Universe. Which oh, had Franklin Jella in it. And I only bring it up because Kiesla will watch anything with Franklin Jella in it. Oh yeah, the Masters of the Universe movie. With young Dolph Lundgren. But also, you know who else was in the Masters of the Universe movie? Courtney Cox, I love you. You're so hot on that show. She was, wasn't she? Yeah, I think, wasn't she the love interest of Dolph Lundgren in the Masters of the Universe no, movie? She, no, she was the love interest of somebody else. Oh. Remember, there was there was He-Man, and then there was a guy. Oh, a guy. They didn't have the budget to transport everybody to Eternia. So they transported He-Man and Skeletor to Earth. Okay, so Canon Films, they did not have the money. No, they, they ran, you know what? Secret Galaxy on YouTube actually had a thing with the movie. You can go and watch it, and you, yeah. can, and you can learn for yourself. Canon ran out of money filming this. All right, what else about this? crappy-ass show do we have to talk about? Okay, there's one more role, a man by the name of Alan Kerner, and he's played by James Staley, who retired from acting in 1996, but he was in Picket Fences, Briscoe County Jr., Perfect Strangers, four episodes of Coach, and he was the motel desk clerk in National Lampoon's Vacation. Oh, so he's the guy that tells Clark that they can't accept the check? He's that guy. And then Clark accidentally bangs his fist onto the table, and then the cash register shoots out, and he steals all the money. That's quality cinema, dude. Harold Ramis, master. And then there are a couple more people, but we'll get to that when we talk about the three episodes that did air. And then briefly glance over the six that didn't, because somebody out there knows something. Alright, so the first episode is The Pilot, written by series creators William Bickley and Michael Warren, who of course would go on to further success teaming up with Thomas Miller, Eddie Milkus, and Bob Boyette. Wow, so it's the beginning of the step-by-step guys. Full House, step-by-step, Family Matters, Perfect Strangers, Mork and Mindy. They did Mork and Mindy. They did Miller, Mork and Mindy. Yes. Milkus, yeah. Well, they not Milkus. Milkus was gone by after uh, like bosom 80. buddies. 
they, oh, did, they all three of them did bosom buddies. All three of them did bosom buddies, Kiesel. That's all you need to know. All three of them did bosom buddies. That's all you need to know. Okay, so the pilot, directed by Bill Persky, want to say he was teamed up with Sam Denoff or something. Joe Namath stars in a comedy series as Joe Casey, the coach of a hapless co-ed basketball team, whose members also seem determined to prove they aren't much as scholars either. Calling Joe Namath's character Joe, that's about as predictable as Tony Danza being on a show and his name being Tony. And then there's episode two. Tate versus Tate, written by Dan Wilcox and sitcom legend Dad Mumford, directed by comedy legend Dick Martin. Why'd they get Dick Martin to direct an episode for this? They needed something to do after they canceled Mind Readers? No, no Mind my- Readers was after. This oh. would have been the Cheap Show era. Oh! And we know... We love the cheap show around here. Teacher Joe Casey is caught in the middle when a student seeks refuge from his father at Joe's house. Yeah, but playing the father. Imagine if this show actually ran for more than three episodes. This would be sort of like if you go back in time and you step on a butterfly and it changes the entire course of history. Imagine if Waverly Wonders lasted more than again three four episodes and uh this character got brought back tate senior was played by conrad bain we know who conrad bain is but think about the timeline here maud ended in 1978 different strokes started in november of 1978 this fits nicely in between the two so what happens if Waverly Wonders lasts more than three, four episodes? Do we ever get Conrad Bain as Mr. Drummond? Nope. Just throwing that out there. It's a very interesting hypothetical because this is not the only episode that Conrad Bain was in. Yeah, there was another episode, but I don't know if it aired out of order or if it aired somewhere else or if they planned on airing it but didn't i don't know but we have another recurring character and that would be margie played by hope alexander willis who was last seen as burn in georgia rule and as lady caroline in the princess diaries 2 royal engagement with all due respect to her taking a look at her imdb the only show she had any sort of longevity on was 23 episodes of the new WKRP in Cincinnati. Not the original. Oh, no. Now, hold on. You know who was on the new WKRP in Cincinnati, Mike? Well, I'm sure we could rattle off a whole bunch of names, but I'm sure there's uh, one Ch- in particular. You Chico, do you want to say it? Connie Katayan, baby! That's not where I was going with that. Damn it! <laughs> yeah, now I'm disappointed. You had me at Tony Katane, but that wasn't what Greg was going to say. Brent Stewart. Now, could you imagine? You like, mean like this, Greg? He's like squinting a lot? Yeah, like this. I'm Brent Stewart and I'm squinting. Imagine what would happen 
French Stewart, Tawny Katayan, Michael T. Williamson. If that show lasted more than, what, three seasons, the new WKRP in Cincinnati? Two seasons. Two seasons. If it lasted more than two seasons, we'd be, you know, like you said, Mike, stepping on a butterfly. Michael T. Williamson would not have been in Forrest Gump. Fred Stewart would not have been in Third Rock from the Sun. And Tawny Katayan would not be washing the hood of White Snake's car with her behind. No, she did the White Snake videos before she was on the new WKRP in Cincinnati. What would have happened is she would have never married Chuck Finley. Oh. Yeah. But also, I bet you at some point... French Stewart would have been like, hey, everybody, stay the hell away from Gordon Jump's bike shop. Okay, so episode three, Pied Piper. Not much is known about this episode, but it does feature Hope Alexander Willis and Conrad Bain as Margie and Tate Sr. Was Roddy Piper in this episode? No. Oh. And then we have a fourth episode, but it's the third one that actually has a capsule. I think something got preempted in one of those episodes. But Rafkin's Victory Dance is the fourth episode. Joe plays matchmaker in an attempt to find an escort for his dateless female star player. Playing Ginger in that episode, Audrey Landers. Wait, you mean the sister of... Judy Landers, who was on previous entry Madam's Place? Yes. The equally attractive buxom sister of Judy Landers. Yeah, but she wasn't as airheaded as her sister. But also, both were on a week of Match Game Hollywood Squares Hour, at least. Separate weeks. And you just have to know, Joe definitely made a pass on her. And from there... NBC took a look at the ratings and said, you know what? No! They're like, we have some awful crap on this network, but we have standards, damn it. Fred Silverman put his foot down and was like, we have a lot of crap on this network, but you know what? I'm not going to have more crap on this network. I'm not going to stand for it. Well, at least one of the unaired episodes had a capsule because I'm looking at the episode called Joe Checks Out the Librarian and I do have a capsule for that. Oh, hold on. Joe Checks Out the Librarian. Yes. And you know exactly where it's going based on that title. Oh, yeah. Joe's playful overtures to a shy librarian backfire when she falls madly in love with him. And playing the librarian. The legendary Joan Van Ark. The very legendary, very wonderful Joan Van Ark. Oh, God. Woo! I love that Kiesel's basically become a fourth character in this episode. This might make the top ten episodes between 400 and 600. Now, we've only done five episodes, Greg. That's pretty <laughs> presumptuous. Yeah, well, we'll definitely have the young Dolph Sweet episode in that list. So, Jennifer Celestia Revisited and this are definitely going to be in our lists. Or one of our lists. 
which, by the way, the playlists for our 10 favorites between 201 and 400 are now on YouTube. So check that out on our YouTube channel. Do you want to blitz through the rest of the episodes, at least uh, giving names and uh, guest stars? Why, yes. Yes, I do. All right, let's do it then. So there is an episode called The Kiss. I don't know if that has a direct relationship to the librarian episode we just talked about. I do have a capsule for that episode. Really? Courtesy of the the classic TV archive. Joe's job is in jeopardy when his alma mater notifies him that he may never legally have graduated. Susan? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. And you see, when I heard the title, The Kiss, I thought that just had to do with uh, Joe Namath trying to hit on Susie Colbert. No, that's later. Episode 7 is called Joe Goes to Press. I think we could probably yeah. guess what that's about. Uh-huh. Enraged by a local sports writer's criticism of his basketball team, Joe lets Rafkin ghostwrite a letter to the editor for him. Yeah, that seems like something he'd do. I didn't know Manish Mehta was writing about high school sports in Wisconsin in 1977. Damn! Damn! Episode 8 is called The Revolution. And no guest stars of note there. And also no capsule. And uh, the ninth episode is called Mock Marriage. Oh, oh, this doesn't sound very good. Maybe we should be really glad only three or four episodes of this aired because, yeah, Mock Marriage and number nine, that doesn't sound too terribly good to me. Yeah, and I'll tell you something else because I've got the numbers right here. 1978-1979, there were... 114 shows that aired in the season on all three networks. Guess where the Waverly Wonders ended up? 96. Mike, do you want to take a guess? Oh, in the hundreds. Three digits. It was tied for 101st with Who's Watching the Kids? Future entry. Lucan, no idea what that is, making it, previous entry, those three. I'll take it a step further. I have the ratings for two weeks. We're looking at the last week of September of 1978, and then the first full week in October of 1978. There were 67 shows that first week, talking about the end of September of 1978. Out of 67, do you want to take a guess where it placed? 64th? 61st? 64th was the previously mentioned Who's Watching the Kids. 61st was Carter Country. Right between. Tied for 62nd, Waverly Wonders and American Girls. And just rounding up the bottom shows, uh, after Who's Watching the Kids, you had Paper Chase, because remember, before it was on Showtime, it was on broadcast television, and then something called WEB, I don't know what that is, and Apple Pie. Yeah, uh, WEB is actually web. It's a TV show about television. Who'd let's watch go- that? Let's go to that first week of October of 78. 62 shows. Where did place? 59. Ding, 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 ding. 59th. 
beating salute to American imagination and who's watching the kids and the aforementioned web. So I'm looking at the schedule now. Oh, the schedule's not good. The Waverly Wonders aired Fridays at 8, opposite Donnie and Marie and the new adventures of Wonder Woman. Oh, no, you're not beating Donnie and Marie. You're definitely not beating Linda Carter. I mean, just look at her. If you had the choice between her and Joe Namath, you'd just go with Linda Carter. Yeah, she had better legs. He did those pantyhose commercials. Just saying. Yes, we, we all know he did those. Yeah, I, I, know, I know you know that. I that's don't know the joke. People listening know that. Yeah. Okay. But I also want to add the ratings that I gave you for that first week in October, that was published on October 11th of 1978. The next day, published on October 12th of 1978, Joe Namath has been thrown for a loss in his first try as TV stardom. NBC said it has canceled his new Waverly Wonders comedy. And in the same press release, NBC said the series will be replaced starting November 3rd by, listen to this, because we referred to this earlier, different strokes. There is no mention about uh, Conrad Bain being in Waverly Wonders, but what replaced Waverly Wonders? The thing that, I want to say, made Conrad Bain's career. It, it did make his career because he was not a primary cast member on Maud. Because if you remember, he was, I believe, Rue McClanahan's husband. But now he's got his own show. Well, him and Gary Coleman and Todd Bridges. But yeah, different strokes replaced Waverly Wonders. And the rest is history. Turns out to be the lone bright spot on NBC Friday schedule in 1978. Judging by what I'm looking at. Because I want to say we have the, if not the last season, but the next to the last season of The Rockford Files. And then we have previous entries, Hello Larry, Brothers and Sisters, and Turnabout. And future entry, Sweepstakes. And who's watching the kids? Would have been the second to last season of Rockford Files because that ended in 80. So the intro and a couple of promos for the Waverly Wonders can be found online. On YouTube, obviously. Additional promos and materials are being held by the Mississippi State University Archives, including promos featuring Dean Martin and another notable football player turned actor. Oh, right. The rest of the series is considered lost media. Don't cry for anybody on the Waverly Wonders. Joe Namath had himself a fruitful post-football career. If you remember the film Chattanooga Choo Choo, he was one of the leads playing Newt Newton. But also, here in New York, I remembered him fondly when I was a kid for doing those ads for Nobody Beats the Wiz. All right, let's talk technology. This is not what you take from a sandwich when you're hungry. Come to the new computer center at Nobody Beats the Wiz and learn all about megabytes, hard drives, and floppy disks. Check out our 32-page Focus 91 circular to find the computer you want. 
or shop by phone 1-800-253-0186. And nobody beats the Wiz. The future is now. I miss nobody beats the Wiz. And of course, Kim Lankford would make the move out to Knott's Landing. And Gwen Guilford, she would have a career as a lovely lady, even though she would not spend the rest of her life with Joe Casey. And, you know, this ultimately just became just a thing on TV. Actually, it was a thing in Joe Namath's biography if you look on pages 387 to 388. Oh, so it was worth like two pages to talk about and it was like, that's it. Probably one of those things where the paragraph starts on one page and ends on the other. And the thing about this show, the show cost $200,000 to make. $200,000 in 1978 is almost a million dollars today. NBC was really trying, y'all. Wow! Joe Namath made a couple of movies. I, of course, saw them. Because I love Joe Namath as a player. His movies were atrocious. Okay, I mean, there's no other word. The only good thing about the movie was Anne Margaret was in the one C.C. Ryder. That's the only thing that was good about it was Anne Margaret was in it. Joe was awful in the movie. Absolutely awful. Elvis Presley, okay, he was De Niro compared to Namath. Very few athletes can act. There are a couple. I'll tell you who's not bad in the movies. And I, I don't know if we call him an athlete, though. I guess we do. Is the Rock an athlete? I guess he. I mean, he's he's a character, but he's okay. He's become big. No, he's a pretty good actor. He's actually okay. I mean, he's actually he's decent. It's touchy, but OJ was good in the Naked Gun movies. Dick Butkus wasn't a bad actor. Wasn't terrible. Episode four hundred six, submission number two forty one, Galaxy High School. Galaxy High School aired on CBS Saturday mornings from September 13th to December 6th, 1986, for 13 episodes. It's your traditional three less than Uncle Crocs Block, Hudson Brothers Razzle Dazzle Show, J.J. Starbuck, number of varied episodes of Salvage One, number of episodes of Schooled. And I'm sure there's more, but that'll come at a future date. Okay, so this is the fourth episode that premiered in September of 1986. The other three are Photon, Life with Lucy, and What a Country. By the way, Mike, this is a shouty theme song. Sorry. As long as Greg can't sing it, that's all that matters. This is as shouty as Ferris! Pirina! Yeah. 
So, this is the story of an animated sitcom that had all of the ingredients to be a success, but CBS just did not know what they wanted to do with it. Let me take you back a bit, as a company called TMS Entertainment, which is Tokyo Movie Shinsha, known for doing a lot of anime, but also doing a lot of Western animation work for the Disney Afternoon, mostly. They've set up an office in Los Angeles to Americanize a comic book in Japan called Urusei Yatsura. Created by Rumiko Takahashi in the late 70s and early 80s, way before Inuyasha, it told the story of an alien Amazon who came to Earth to invade and enslave mankind. But mankind is defended by a teenage pervert named Ataru Moroboshi, who accidentally gets married to the Amazon? Okay. They wanted to bring this to America? What? This is, by the way, the cleanest way I can totally describe this show. Do your own research, form your own opinion. They wanted to turn it into something similar to, but legally distinct from Urusei Yatsura TMS wanted to do for the U.S. So, they commissioned an up-and-coming screenwriter named Chris Columbus. Yes, that Chris Columbus, talking about Home Alone, Harry Potter, Adventures in Babysitting, Gremlins, Gremlins. But let's not forget Percy Jackson. And for one reason. That was Alexandria D'Addario. That was the one reason you watched Percy Jackson. Not the Disney Plus series. Is that still a thing? The Disney Plus series? I, who knows. So TMS Entertainment teams up with Chris Columbus animation superscribe Larry Dettelio, who, you know, He-Man and She-Ra, The Secret of the Sword, Transformers, G.I. Joe, and character designs from, among other people, John Crisfalusi. We don't talk about John Crisfalusi. And together they came up with a premise called High School... 2525. In the year 2525. When Michael Chase Walker, who was involved in the creation of High School 2525 with Sid Iwanter, the creative director, when he became the director of children's programs for CBS, he bought the show and changed the name to Galaxy High School in an attempt to develop a Saturday morning schedule that resembled an old-fashioned Saturday movie matinee, this is all from Truth by Consensus Wikipedia, with a range of horror, Teen Wolf, science fiction, Galaxy High School, comedy, Pee-wee's Playhouse, rest in peace, Pee-wee, 
and Western, something called Wildfire. The theme song is very expository, but here are some more details. Galaxy High School is located on the fictional asteroid Flutor. Doyle Cleverlobe, a strong athlete, and Amy Brighttower, a bit of a bookish nerd, are chosen as the first two Earthlings to attend Galaxy High School. And when they get there, Future Shock doesn't even begin to cover it. And not just because they're going to a high school with aliens and a locker that talks to you. It turns out that there aren't many females at Galaxy High School, and Amy being as smart as she is, not only becomes a popular student, but also because she is the smartest person in school, she gets her very own space car. Meanwhile, Doyle Cleverlobe, who is an athlete on Earth, is very, uh, how you say, full of himself. And that tends to rub everybody the wrong way at Galaxy High. Especially people who see him as A, not that special, and B, a punching bag. And by a punching bag, I of course mean the target of Bonk and the Beef Bunch. Who goes to Galaxy High along with Amy and Doyle? We have Gilda Gossip, who looks like an octopus for a head with several lips. And when she gets really excited, she uses all of them. Reggie Unicycle is somebody who really gets around because his bottom is a unicycle. Wendy Garbo is the most fashionistic person at Galaxy High. Harvey and Myrtle Blastermeyer are literally joined at the hip. Bowie Bubblehead has a bubble for a head. The Creep is a short, fuzzy, yellow thing that has a penchant for sounding like a Vegas show tune singer. And then you have Beef and the Bonk Bunch, Beef Bonk, Rotten Roland, and Earl <laughs> Leading the classic Galaxy High is Milo DeVenus, a stereotypical short, fat, dumpy nerd with thick glasses and six arms. Rounding out the Motley crew at Galaxy High is Professor Eisenstein, who has to keep his classroom at sub-zero temperatures, or else he'll die. Ms. Biddy McBrain, who is a sweet old lady, and the voice of Doyle's locker, who gives Doyle about as much of a hard time as, well, everybody else. Now, I said that Amy got a full-ride scholarship to Galaxy High, and a space car. Doyle, on the other hand, is basically presented a trip to Galaxy High as, A, a chance to beef up their athletic department, which was lacking, and B, his last best chance to graduate high school 
anywhere in the known universe. In fact, in order to pay his tuition, he has to take a job at a pizzeria manned by somebody named Luigi Labouncy. And that's all you need to know about the background of Galaxy High. So let's go into the cast, which is, by the way, a who's who of voice acting and just talent in general. Playing Amy Brighttower is noted voice actress Susan Blue, and as the voice of Doyle Cleverlobe, we have Hal Rail, and much like Susan Blue before us, if we mentioned everything that he's done, we would be here all day. Other notables in the cast include as Miss Biddy McBrain, Pat Carroll, Ursula herself, as Flat Freddy Fender, Nancy Cartwright, Bart Simpson if you're nasty, as Ollie Oilslick, Gino Conforti, as Coach Frogface, Pat Fraley, as the voice of the lockers, Henry Gibson from Lappin, as Bowie Bubblehead, Jennifer Darling, as Earl <laughs> Guy Christopher, as Luigi LaBouncy, Howard Morris, as Beef Bonk, John Stevenson, from Scooby-Doo fame, as The Creep, is this typecasting, Danny Mann, and as Rotten Roland, Neil Ross, who's literally done everything from Voltron to Press Your Luck, low-key making a Hall of Fame case that Neil Ross, and as Milo DeVenus, Squiggy himself, David L. Lander. Wow, so they got a really good voice cast for this. This was engineered for success. And you know what? It was very well written and very well produced. Let's go into the episodes and see where it went wrong. Episode 1. Welcome to Galaxy High. Doyle Cleverlobe and Amy Brightower arrive at Galaxy High and are greeted by class president Milo DeVenus. Because of her exceptional grades, Amy is rewarded a scholarship and a Xeron X5000 Turbo Space Coup de Ville, while Doyle has to take an extra job at Luigi's Pizza Parlor and gets a used 37-year-old Benson Hoffinger Model 1 7000 skateboard. It's basically a Vespa from Hoopdeville. Oh, so you know it's quality. Needless to say, Amy is having the time of her life while Doyle is longing for life back on Earth. I guess this is a classic lesson in standing out and fitting in because the girls take Amy to get her skin dyed blue. What? Probably a carryover from the high school 2525 development when Doyle was supposed to be the main character and Amy was just the closest thing to a human they could possibly get. 
Although Amy says Doyle is once again a star thanks to winning a game of Zuggleball against Beef. It's similar to hockey, but with a living puck. Oh! A more mature Doyle admits the popularity may be hard to maintain and he needs to start showing more respect for others at Galaxy High. Episode 2. Pizza's Honor. Luigi receives an order of 100 pizza to be delivered to the planet Tingler, which everyone is afraid of because it's supposed to be haunted. Hold on. The planet's name is Tingler. So Luigi has Milo make the pizzas, which he can do at six times the speed of a normal person. Not just because of his arms, but because he is an overachiever. And then he wants Doyle to make the delivery. He gets a reputation for bravery, gaining the admiration of the only girls at Galaxy High. And the Galaxy High students laugh at Beef because an Earth boy is braver than him, which causes the Bonk Bunch to follow Doyle and try scaring him, causing both their ships to crash land on the planet. It basically turns into enemy mine. Doyle delivers the pizza to Trumbull Hall on the planet Tingler, and the Bonk Bunch continues playing to scare him and also to steal his delivery money to pay for Beef's own hot rod repairs, while Doyle learns that Tingler is not what it seems and that the Bonk Bunch is far more scared of the species on Tingler. Episode 3. The Beef Who Would Be King Tired of Beef's bullying, Doyle finds out what Bonk's sweet spot is from his locker. Onions. Simple earth onions. Just before Beef is about to extract his revenge on Doyle, aliens from the planet Cholesterol arrive and proclaim Beef their new leader, the High Cholesterol. Oh, God. Despite Doyle and Amy's objections, the Cholesterolians insist on taking Beef back to their planet and bathing him in luxury before they devour him. When Amy's space car shorts out, Doyle must get to Cholesterol by himself, and as Doyle is about to be thrown into a canyon, Beef grabs him, causing the Cholesterolians to say that he's forfeited his position due to no longer being the worst man in the universe. Doyle expects that he and Beef will be on better terms, but Beef cannot resist being anti-social again. Episode 4. Where's Milo? Milo loses his popularity as class president and his job at Luigi's because of his clumsiness. Alligatori, who looks like an alligator, of the leather scene, offers the downtrodden Venusian a job. Unfortunately... In his rush to gain any supportive support from anything for anybody, Milo does not read the contract, and he is hired to be a living store window mannequin. And after Doyle gives a this-is-the-reason-you-suck speech to everybody at Galaxy High School, he mounts a daring rescue. And there's a picture of Milo in his new line of work. It's goofy. Episode 5. Those eyes. Those lips. All the girls are excited that Rockstar Mick Maggers is going to give a concert at Galaxy High, especially Bowie, who's a big 
fan and has sent him many letters. Unfortunately, the concert is sold out. Oh, no. Well, good thing this isn't 2023 and they were at Taylor Swift concert. Amy decides to help find a way for Bowie to meet Mick. Meanwhile, Beef is planning to take Wendy to the concert. In order to get in, he and his gang get jobs as security for Mick. But a pizza monster has kidnapped Wendy, with whom it apparently has fallen in love. Meanwhile, Bowie sneaks onto Mick's ship, where she meets someone calling himself James, who wants to help her, but asks her what's so great about Mick Maggers as he's just some guy, and Bowie says Mick's music speaks to her. Amy, Gilda, and Milo continue trying to help Bowie, while the Bog Bunch continue keeping them out. But in the end, James does help everyone, and he has a surprise for them. He's Mick Baggers. Oh. Episode 6. Doyle's New Friend. Everyone at Galaxy High is preparing for the Hands Across the Universe dance. Amy is expected to be crowned queen of the dance, and Beefbog plans to make sure he's made king. The first guest dude to arrive is Wolfgang Armadillo, a big practical joker. His pranks make him instantly unpopular, though Doyle insists on standing up for his new friend. Beef recruits Wolfgang into the Bog Bunch, and they get him to switch ballot boxes in the election for king and queen, but Wolfgang ends up tricking Beef and winning back Doyle and the rest of the crew. Episode 7. Dollars and Cents. Reggie Unicycle, the richest teen in the universe and famed Galaxy High alumni, visits the school and instantly sets his mind on Amy Brightower. EW! She's a kid! Yeah. Creep, who, by the way, nobody knows his real name, and all they know him as is the Creep, but Creep is crushed when Amy begins to fall for Reggie's charms, then misunderstands Miss McBrain's explanation about the Midas touch, and thinks Amy will be turned to gold. He convinces Doyle and the others to go to the Platinum Planet to rescue her, at a party Reggie throws for her at his parents' mansion, where there just so happens to be a golden statue that he has made for her, which the creep and the others mistake for Amy. Amy realizes Reggie, who's dated many girls around the galaxy, is not really as interested in her as he thinks he is, so she returns to Galaxy High. I'm guessing Reggie's looking at her and thinking, I've never dated a human before. And on that disappointment, I think we all need a break, especially so I can clean out my uh, brain. Well, we'll head back to Galaxy High School in a bit, but first, let's see what was going on in the news in the mid-80s. We'll be right back. In the news, the deep sea dives of Deep Rover. Recently, scientists have been exploring the depths of California's Monterey Canyon in a new type of submarine. We'll be back with some of their underwater discoveries in the news. Here are a few words about Levi's jeans and cords. <laughs> Levi's. <laughs> Someone else! 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 Someone else!
going to rain cats and dogs, and in other words, Tommy Fisher's And now, Deep Rover, down in the depths, in the news. Deep Rover is a new type of submarine. It dives more than 2,000 feet below the ocean's surface. But what makes it special is that it can go just about anywhere the pilot wants. Unlike other deep diving craft, it is not tied or attached to ships on the surface. This freedom has opened up a new world for underwater explorers. Here, off the coast of California, they dive into an undersea canyon larger than Arizona's Grand Canyon. What they've seen and photographed has amazed even experts. An eel pout that protects itself by coiling up to try to look like a type of jellyfish that other fish wouldn't want to eat. Siphonophores, colonies of animals divided up so that some parts are responsible for food while others are in charge of protection. And a narcomedusa, a jellyfish that has its own lighting system called bioluminescence. That's not unusual down here where the sun's light never reaches. 80% of the animals here generate their own light. Occasionally, when scientists want to capture one of these rare animals for further study, they just suck it up with Deep Rover's slurp gun. It doesn't hurt the creature. These deep dives have changed scientists' view of the number of animals living in the ocean and opened new possibilities for feeding mankind with life from the sea. I'm Christopher Glenn with the discoveries of Deep Rover in the news. This is CBS. Well, thanks, Christopher Glenn, for that report. Now let's get back to the rest of this episode. Episode 8. Beach Blanket Blow-Up. Oh my god. What the hell? Doyle wants to go with Wendy to Fort Lauderoid for spring break, so he tricks Amy into loading him her car. Hilarity ensues. She's upset when she learns the truth, but Doyle can't go anyway because he failed Professor Eisenstein's course and needs to do a science project to earn enough to pass it. Meanwhile, Reggie takes everyone to the beach on his space yacht. Amy realizes that she likes him and Gilda and Bowie convince her that he likes her too. Doyle passes his extra credit work about supernovas, but discovers that Fort Lauderoid's son is going to go supernova, so he and Eisenstein go to warn everybody, though Eisenstein melts, and Doyle has to carry him in a glass. Oh. Amy thinks Doyle's come to ask her to go steady, but he tells everyone about the supernova. But everyone thinks it's a joke at her expense. If this sounds like a parody of Beach Blanket Bingo... It is because it is indeed a parody of Beach Blanket Bingo. Well, yeah, it's obvious by the title. Episode 9. It's a very special episode of Galaxy High. This episode actually won the show a Humanitas Award for addressing the drug epidemic in the 80s and not being too ham-fisted about it. Doyle is good at the game of psych hockey. The entire school becomes fans when he wins game after game, but this is also putting him under a great deal of pressure as he's struggling academically and Crow's frog face is demanding that he hit the books. A shady character called 
Punk McThruster offers the use of a brain blaster to enhance Doyle's knowledge. Doyle refuses, but after finding a cosmic literature test too difficult, he reconsiders. Of course, the first hit of brainwaves is free, but after that it gets costly, and Doyle has more tests to pass if he wants to remain eligible to play Psychoki. He has to start managing his new habit, but using the brain blaster costs Doyle more than financially, takes quite a toll on his mind, making him much dumber than usual and anything other than the subjects that the device enhances for him. So, soon he's really messed up and desperate to keep using the device, not just for classes, but to feed his addiction to it. When Punk's supplier gets busted, he tells Doyle that his only option for finding more brainwaves is to go to a dangerous place called South Andromeda. The wrong side of the asteroid belt. Luckily, his friends had found out from Ollie where he had gone and showed up to rescue him, but when they find out he's gotten a hold of a jar of brainwaves, they dispose of it, which make Doyle reluctant to play in the Psych Hockey Championship, believing he cannot win without the Brain Blaster. An ironic turn of events demonstrates that Doyle, that using a Brain Blaster, is basically cheating. So what did we learn today? Drugs are bad, good. See you next time, on a very special episode. <laughs> episode 10, The Brat Pack. After trashing the teacher's lunch table, Beef Bonk gets the worst punishment Miss McBrain can think of. He's put in charge of the elementary school class. That's right, Galaxy High School isn't just a high school, it's an elementary school. The alien tots turn out to be an unruly bunch who dream of a day out to Nova Land. Beef offers to take them there if they behave. When Miss McBrain forbids it, he decides to grant the toddlers their wish anyway and gets the others to help. Episode 11 Founders Day. Galaxy High is celebrating Founders Day to commemorate the opening of Galaxy High. Beef chases Doyle, Amy, Milo, and the Creep into Professor Eisenstein's experimental time machine and accidentally sends them back to the original Founder's Day. The foursome becomes the discoverers of the asteroid Flutor, instead of the ones who are supposed to discover it. Pancake Baker Luigi and his star waitress Biddy McBrain. That's right. It's a time travel story, and they messed with the timeline. Now they gotta go and fix it. Oh no. They're basically doing Back to the Future at this point. Which wouldn't be on CBS for another two or three years. Well, hold on. 86, right? Yes. It'd be like more like five years. Okay. Not only have they got to get 5,000 mega credits together to pay for the discovery, they have to convince Biddy to become a high school principal, Luigi to bake pizzas, and all the different aliens in the galaxy to get along. By the way, it's in this episode where we learn that the events of Galaxy High School take place in the futuristic year of 1986. What? Does this take place in, like, the For All Mankind timeline? I believe it does. So the Flutorians are starting the destruction at the last minute. Milburn Unicycle, the great great-great-descendant of Reggie Unicycle, 
pays the Flutorians the mega credits and will also agree to build Galaxy High School under one condition. It contained an adjunct elementary school as his toddler Reggie needs to begin school. Okay, so they didn't go that far back in time. Episode 12. Martian Mumps. Locks, a new student from Mars, arrives and infects Milo with the Martian Mumps. Soon the entire school is looking green, sporting antennas, and very punctual. Only Doyle and Amy, being from Earth, appear to be immune. Captain James T. Smirk of the Meta Federation starship Eagle Eyes arrives on the scene and places Galaxy High under eternal quarantine and place it in orbit around Mars. But permanent Martianization will take place in 24 hours unless First Officer Splook and the crew of the Eagle Eyes team up with Amy and Doyle to find a cure. Doyle unwittingly cures Beef by making him angry, and Eisenstein realizes that playing on an individual's strongest emotion will turn them back to normal. So Doyle, Amy, and Beef set out to cure their friends and the faculty. And finally, episode 13, it came from Earth. Galaxy High is in the Zuggleball Championships, and Doyle intends to prove that he's a big man by winning the game single-handedly. He's doing pretty well until he gets knocked unconscious. Doyle then wakes up on Earth and realizes that 15 years has passed, which time he's grown to 400 feet tall. Amy's a doctor, Milo's president, Beef is a general, Gilda's a reporter, the creep is a famous singer, Roland is a sheriff, and pretty much everyone from Galaxy High is now on Earth. Why would anyone want to come to Earth? Why would anyone come to Earth? Yeah, especially since Andy Griffith took all the space junk from the moon. Professor Eisenstein has been trying to find a cure for Doyle's mysterious growth, and when Doyle wakes up, he takes off to find him. Along the way, he causes a great deal of damage, and the military, led by Beef, is dispatched to stop Doyle. Suddenly, he wakes up in his proper size and realizes it was all a dream. In the real world, he was knocked out for 15 seconds. Having learned his lesson, Doyle finishes the game, this time being a team player. So, yeah, this show, as absurd as it sounds on the surface, was actually very well done. And aside from that, it had a plush time spot right after Muppet Babies and right before Teen Wolf. So what happened? On one hand, you have the Smurfs. And on the other hand, you have the real Ghostbusters. Yeah, you ain't beating the real Ghostbusters and the Smurfs. So in November, CBS moved Galaxy High to 11 o'clock right after Teen Wolf and right before reruns of Richie Rich. By the way, the reruns of Richie Rich, they replaced The Puppy's Great Adventures. And it would feed into previous entry, because I want to see Greg's reaction when I say this, Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling. Oh, yes. So yeah, Galaxy High is now at 11 by the end of its run. 
You know what else was at 11? The Bugs Bunny and Tweety Show and Foofer. You're not having a good time there. So, being Saturday morning, they could run out the 13 episodes in perpetuity. And while Chris Columbus and crew are getting to work starting on season two, one episode involves a food fight turning into a civil war. And the season would have Amy and Doyle kind of start a will-they-or-won't-they romance. But when they moved the show to noon in the summer, out of reruns of Land of the Lost, the writing was pretty much on the wall. CBS canceled the show. It was a classic case of being screwed by the network. The show's time slot was switched around with more popular shows such as Pee-wee's Playhouse and Muppet Babies, leading to the show appearing in a later time slot, which meant it was frequently preempted by sporting events. Especially those that started very early on the West Coast. Yeah, mainly college football. The show failed to find a proper audience and was eventually cancelled, though the show has since gained a cult following for its clever, ahead-of-its-time writing, and its very high animation quality. Again, owing to character designs and scripts by the aforementioned writers and producers of this show. Now, the show did ultimately get a proper home release. Four episodes of the show were re-edited into a compilation video titled Galaxy High in 1989 by Family Home Entertainment. All 13 episodes are available uncut and as they were originally aired across two volumes produced and distributed by Media Blasters through their Anime Works imprint. Or if you can't be bothered with cumbersome physical media, the episodes are available to stream right now for free on TMS's official YouTube channel. And actually, we were talking about how this became a cult classic. So what do you do with cult classics from the 80s? Yeah, make it into a movie. And that almost happened with this show. In 1996, a live-action adaptation was planned auctioned and optioned to both DreamWorks and Paramount. It would have been produced by John H. Williams, best known for his work in the Shrek films, and it would have reteamed Williams with Chris Columbus. The movie remains in development hell and since 1996 which, if my math is correct, is 27 years ago, I would have to consider that project abandoned. But it does have a bit of a legacy amongst fans of anime and science fiction in general. It frequently appears in the 1980s animation magazine Serial Geek. It was adapted to the similar to but legally distinct from role-playing game Teenagers from Outer Space, and it was actually made into a pastiche on episode 17 of 2014 science fiction anime Space Dandy. 
now that you know about the long convoluted history of this show, thoughts? Well, it's good that Chris Columbus did some television. And, well, I don't remember this show at all. I mean, I was like two when this came out, but it was kind of like watching some of the episodes. It's like you could tell there might have been something there. I mean, you could tell the writing was pretty good. They got a good voice cast for this, but it was like network meddling basically is what killed it in the end. It just couldn't find an episode for something as ahead of its time, if I'm being completely honest. But again, don't cry for anybody that came out of Galaxy High. The voice cast is doing fine. Chris Columbus has a fruitful career, and the show itself has become a cult classic. Yeah, and then Chris Columbus a year later would write, in my opinion, one of the greatest movies ever, Adventures in Babysitting. With one of the worst remakes of one of the greatest movies in 80s history. That's true. But remember, you don't F with the babysitter, Chico. We'll leave you with this sort of outline from an aborted second season episode called The Day the School Stood Still. This was actually from Starlog Magazine in 1986, where Chris Columbus said, A cafeteria food fight erupts into intramural war, and the Intergalactic Board of Trustees decides to close the school unless the kids can prove the great experiment of Galaxy High a success. For a Saturday morning kids show... Really deep stuff. And here we are in the future, giving an appreciation of what is, what was, and what could have been. But alas, in 1986, CBS could not, for the life of themselves, find an audience for it. And Galaxy High School became a thing on TV. Wow! CBS Saturday. Stay tuned for Galaxy High. Saturday. Episode 407. Submission number 313. Mrs. Columbo. Also known as Kate Columbo. Also known as Kate the Detective. And also known as Kate Loves a Mystery. Mrs. Columbo or Kate Columbo, or Kate the Detective, or Kate Loves a Mystery, ran on NBC from February 26, 1979 to March 19th of 1980, over two seasons for 13 episodes. And you know what, guys? Mrs. Columbo, also known as Kate Columbo, also known as Kate the Detective, also known as Kate Loves a Mystery, those 13 episodes it ran for, three less than Uncle Crack's Block, Hudson Brothers Razzle Dazzle Show, J.J. Starbuck, the number of varied episodes of Salvage One, and the number of episodes of Schooled, and probably another five or ten series, but I don't have the time to go through it.
one of the most popular shows in the 1970s, at least from a crime drama perspective, I think we'd have to agree was Columbo, where you had Peter Falk. We all know who Peter Falk is and his questioning and then, oh, just one more thing. And Columbo originally ran from 1968 to 1978. So it had a nice 10-year run. And if you don't know, Columbo appeared on ABC sporadically from the late 80s until past 2000, I believe 2003. So it had a life of literally 45 years, albeit you had uh, 11 gap years there, if you will. And somebody at NBC, boy, I wonder who. <laughs> I'm going to say this as the church lady. Fred Silverman had the great idea of bringing back Columbo in a sense. The series didn't have Columbo per se, but we're going to look at his wife. This wife that, yes, she had a role in the Columbo series, but there's some issues here. Uh, specifically, we said that uh, the original version started in 1968. This is 1979. Kate Mulgrew, who plays the title character, Mrs. Columbo in this series, she was 24 when she started in this. So if we take that back 11 years, I'm not going to do the math. You can figure out how old Kate Mulgrew would have been in 1968. And oddly enough, that's the perfect age if you want to be a girlfriend of Wanda Franco. Oh, Jesus. Well, I was going to mention the fact that uh, Columbo brought up a wife in his rotation on the NBC mystery movie and the ABC mystery movie. But yeah, let's talk about that instead. I don't know what else needs to be said besides that's creepy. If Kate Columbo had been part of Columbo canon for 11 years, no, I'm not touching that with a forklift because, again, hypothetically, Mrs. Columbo would have been 13 and Peter Falk, his Columbo character, would have been probably about 30 years older than her. That's creepy. Yeah, what else do we need to say about that besides you? Well, I'm... well, what? From what I've gathered during the research, it gets a little bit hankier. How does it get worse? What? In this series, Kate Mulgrew has a daughter. Oh, no! Wait, I'm not finished yet. Oh, it just is getting worse. No. She's eight years old. Okay, hold on. They're doing math. Ew! That's too old to be a Wander Franco girlfriend. 16. So to say the least, there may be a continuity issue or two or even a moral issue or two here. Yeah! I'm going to need to shower uh, with bleach after we're done with this, I think. Well, maybe not. We'll see. But yeah, that sort of is a little creepy to start off with. Your title character is 24 years old and apparently has been part of the series for essentially a decade or more. The math doesn't work. The logistics doesn't work. 
The ick factor does work, though. Ugh. Seriously. Maybe it's a Charles Foster Kane, Orson Welles situation. I don't know. Where he was, like, much younger than he actually was in age. Maybe, but, I mean, we've talked about this in the past where people are playing fathers or mothers to other characters and in reality they're either a couple of years younger than their child or even younger than their child in some cases this though if you think about it when we talk about it in the past we're talking about like 50 year old actors or actresses playing father to 45 year old people we're not involving people who are 24 and whose character again hypothetically would have been 13 when the series started. There's a creep factor there. I, I, I get the the attempted justification, but still. Ew. Let's get away from that for a bit. Please, let's get away from that. Yes. All right. So the show itself was created by Richard Allen Simmons, who actually won an Emmy for Peter Falk in his writing of Columbo. So he knows what he's doing. Okay, I'll give him that. But also, um, and, and this may not be the best endorsement or lack of endorsement, Peter Falk himself never endorsed the show. And actually, doing a little bit of reading myself, there was a line uh, in one of the Lumbo movies back in the late 80s where Columbo says, a woman's been going round pretending to be my wife, but it isn't her. Little inside jab there, saying, yeah, I had a wife, but it's not necessarily part of Columbo canon. I think it'd be great if I could find that, especially since Columbo airs, oh gosh, where doesn't Columbo air nowadays? It's on Cozy TV. I think I've seen it on, I don't remember where it is. It's not Lifetime movies or, or something like that, but I know there's some other mainstream cable channel that Columbo shows up pretty often, maybe like Ovation or something. Didn't but it I... used to air on Clue? You're asking a person who never had Clue. I don't even know if Clue even exists anymore. No, Clue is gone. Actually, I do remember getting Clue very briefly, but Clue, I believe, folded. Oh my gosh, it has to be like 10 years ago at this point because i think it lasted a little bit less time than uh chiller uh and actually taking a look uh, on wikipedia really fast clue it says closed on february 1st 2017 interestingly enough who owned clue the same company that owns cozy tv nbc universal slash comcast so there's that uh, corporate synergy of hey we own this. Let's just move it from this channel to this channel. But no, I've never been the person to watch sleuth movies and and Chiller. The only reason I would have watched it if I ever saw it was uh, because of the 1980s version of Ripley's Believe It or Not. Believe it or not. I just love when Greg does that. that, that that's sort of like our little trigger. Anytime we talk about Ripley's Believe It or Not, he gets to do his Jack Palance. I love it. Brings joy to my face. As we could probably assume, we've talked about primarily the age difference between the Columbo character and Mrs. Columbo. 
as you may guess, Kate Colombo, well, we already said it talking about uh, the alternate titles to the show. She's a detective. The third name we mentioned was Kate the Detective. So you know what you're coming into here. You're coming into something, using a Chico line here, similar but legally distinct, not necessarily part of canon, for Columbo. So it's just mysteries. Solving crimes while raising her daughter that we talked about earlier, which, again, that brings in the creep factor because... <laughs> yeah, uh, she had an eight-year-old daughter at this point. While holding down a job as a writer for a penny saver. Well, if you think about it, that's a good role model because remember, back in the 70s, that's when the housewife essentially, I don't want to say went to work, but I'm going to say went to work. The housewife was a figment of everybody's imagination in the 80s or at least in the later 80s and i know that's the way my mother was she raised me and my sister until like 83 84 then got a job and didn't raise us any longer even though i would have been like eight or nine at the time and my sister would have been like three or four hooray for rampant inflation having to have a two-income household well, I'm not kidding there. That's that's true. I didn't say you were kidding. I mean, no, no, I went... that, that, that was more rhetorical for the audience. Okay. Because oh. my mom was the same way. She raised uh, my brother and me until we were nine. And then she got a job to pay her way through uh, nursing school. We've gone over the background to this show. But now let's take a look at the key cast members in the show. And first and foremost, playing Kate Colombo who later went by the name Kate Callahan when she was Kate Loves a Mystery. You know, once they got rid of the Mrs. Columbo tagline, she either remarried or used her maiden name. Legend of the small screen, one of Greg and Chico's favorite captains of the Enterprise. Not the Enterprise. God, the, okay. Captain so, of Voyager, dude. Voyager. What? No, let's keep that in. Fuck all of you. <laughs> so as greg informed me the sole person who doesn't like star trek on this show she was the captain of the voyager which is why it's called voyager i don't know star trek i'm sorry every may 4th i celebrate star trek day so <laughs> maybe, sue me maybe you thought it was about the voyager probe which sorry mike that's in star trek the motion picture encounter a Voyager probe. Oh, I'm sorry. I spoiled a 44-year-old movie. Should we just say something about John Shuck so we could play that clip? Uh, let's just play it anyway. Well, why not? Starfleet regulations, that's outrageous! So anyhow, playing Kate Colombo in this series is Captain Janeway herself, Kate Mulgrew. Again, 24-year-old Kate Mulgrew uh, actually, even younger than that, she was born April 29th of 55, so she would have been 23 when this started. Or at the very least, when she was taping the episodes. Well, again, we said earlier that it premiered in February of 79, so she definitely would have been 23 at some point. But also, where else do we know Kate Mulgrew from? Orange is the New Black, 
playing Red Reznikov for 91 episodes. She was on Ryan's Hope for a long time, 75 through 89 for a total of 421 episodes. But also, as I told Greg and Chico, for a lengthy amount of time, she was married to Tim Hagen. Who's Tim Hagen? He was a politician in Cleveland. And they met, I, I want to say it was like a fundraiser for uh, one of his re-election campaigns. And they actually got married in 1999 and they uh, divorced 15 years later. But I think she used to live here. So obviously when she was doing Voyager, she'd commute from Cleveland to L.A. Because I don't think he was living there because he was he wasn't a county commissioner per se, but he was a higher up with the county. Actually, I think it was county commissioner because Cleveland politics is so screwy. The last like 15, 10 years, they've gone to like a, I don't want to say a city council type of setup, but essentially it's like a city council type of setup where you have like one leader, but then you have like nine or 10 representatives representing the county. And I do think Tim Hagen was the county commissioner, at least in the 90s and 2000s. I don't think by 2014 he uh, was still in politics. At least not in Cleveland proper. Playing Josh Alden in this show is Henry Jones. Henry Jones looks like he's a Western actor. Just taking a look really quickly at his IMDb. He was in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. The original 310 to Yuma in 1957. He was the coroner in Vertigo. Vertigo is a great movie. Vertigo is one of my favorite Hitchcock movies. But also, we did talk about him previously. He played Hughes Whitney Lennox in I Married Dora for all 13 episodes of that series. So you know what? He was in that final episode where the entire cast, or at least the entire family at the airport, broke the fourth wall and said, We're canceled! Bye-bye! Still one of the best endings ever. One of the most meta. I'm sorry. When they break the fourth wall, that is epic. Unheard of. But also, he played a character on the first episode of Salvage One. I think he was actually the explorer who found the uh, the creature, the Sasquatch-ish type creature. Right now, while talking about him, I see him on Salvage One playing that sort of explorer type. So he was on that, but he had a lengthy career. Unfortunately, has not been with us for close to 25 years. Playing Jenny Callahan in this show, and this would be the daughter of Kate Callahan, or Kate Colombo, is Lily Hayden. She was a child actress. She is now a concert violinist. And really, if you take a look at her IMDb, that's the first thing that comes up is composer, music department, soundtrack. So she made a career not in front of the camera, but rather, not necessarily behind the scenes, but doing music for movies and TV. In fact, George Clinton, we all love George Clinton around here, calls Lily Hayden the Jimi Hendrix of the violin. Wow. The King of Funk said that. Well, that's king? high praise. Also, we should add that uh, 
Lily Hayden was on 40 episodes of eventual cover, The New Gidget. They did 40 episodes of The New Gidget? Why did anyone want 40 episodes of The New Gidget? Wasn't one enough? Well, according to IMDb, they did 44 episodes, so she was on 10 out of every 11. (laughs) I'm just the messenger, but... I mean, that's cringe right there. I remember The New Gidget. No. No. Some things shouldn't be revived just because they're cool or because they're nostalgic. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself. That's another episode for another day. Playing Sergeant Mike Varick in this series is Don Stroud. The name sounds familiar. I'm sure we've talked about him. Maybe I'm confusing him with former Miami Dolphins and Cleveland Browns quarterback Don Strock. Wouldn't that be great if Don Stroud played quarterback for the Browns? They'd suck even more. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Okay. He, too, was on the new kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) He played the great kahuna. I don't know what that is, either. Well, we'll find out one day, but I did find a much better credit for him. He was in 46 episodes of the new Mike Hammer as Captain Pat Chambers. So he got to work with Stacy Keach. Oh my gosh. We've had two references to the new Gidget in like the last three minutes. No. We need to stop that right now. Did we ever mention the new Gidget prior to this episode? We just did a few weeks ago because I think you reacted like, oh my gosh, you know, this was a thing. And it's like, yeah, this is definitely a thing because whoever played Moondoggy, I don't remember who that was and I'm not going to look for it. But just in the last month or two, whoever played Moondoggy on the new Gidget appeared on something, and you made reference to it. It was Dean Butler who played Moondoggy. So the butler did it. But um, tish. Anyway, to answer your question, Mike, we did talk about Don Stroud before. In fact, we talked about him twice before. He was in an episode of Super Train. How and- blow- wait, 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 wait. How did Greg blow that? He's the man that knows everything Super Train. I'm amazed. And he was in an episode of The Powers of Matthew Starr. I was probably medicated at that point. Have I ever mentioned that I own two Don Russ Americana cards of Louis Gossett Jr.? I've got one myself, I think. I think I've got a patch card of his or a swatch card. Technically, I own one from Americana, and I own one from Donra Celebrity Cuts, so. Oh, you did a Celebrity Cuts purchase. That's big money. I think it was, like, real cheap. I think I mentioned on this show, I think I got it for, like, under five bucks. Not bad. But, yeah, enough about talking about New Gidget, enough talking about Moondoggy. Whatever. Let's get into the episodes proper. Those are the four primary characters in this series. So we have 13 episodes to go through, and we'll start with season one, first episode, which is called Word Games. Wait, they had Wordle back in 1979? I tried. Kate Colombo, the elusive wife of the famous L.A. homicide detective, mother of their loving little daughter, hardworking reporter, and Master Snoopin in her own right overhears the neighbor plotting the death of his wife. The game's afoot. 
Well, no, a foot is a foot. A game is not a foot. Never mind. Lots of names in this episode. Are you kidding me? There are a ton of names. Where should we start? Chico, pick a couple names. Okay, I'm going to start with Robert Culp. Straight out of I Spy, before the greatest American hero. Then I'm going to go into Edie Adams, who played Joanne Huston, or Houston, his wife. Greg, say it. Edie Adams, the ninth most effable woman in the world. Yeah, and more names. Then I'm going to go into Monsieur Gerard, played by Rene Aubergenois, pre-Benson, pre-Deep Space Nine. Time out, guys. I'm watching Cozy TV and Frasier's on. You know who guest stars in this episode of Frasier that I'm watching right now as we speak? It could be Rene Aubergenois. Yes, it is. But also, let's remember in one of his later roles, I don't think it's his last role, he played Dee's acting teacher on an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. That's right. And also, let's remember, Dee can't act. Oh, no, she's a no. crappy-ass actor. But to tie it in with the theme of this episode, Odo from Deep Space Nine. Great point. And hey, how about some more names? Oh my gosh, they just are like pooping out names in this episode. Playing Dr. Prinz in this episode is Barney Martin. Jerry's dad on Seinfeld. Nothing for Jerry's dad or Seinfeld? Well, oh. is that a regular role or was yeah, he? Yeah, he appeared okay. on 20 episodes. He was a, a semi-regular on Seinfeld. Oh, yeah, he was a one and done. He was on a lot of episodes of Seinfeld. So, yeah, that's the stars. Well, some of them before they were stars on episode one. So looks like NBC is sort of going whole hog on this. If you're getting Edie Adams and you're getting Robert Culp. Well, one thing you have to remember is that this aired as a two-hour movie for the premiere. And did we not even mention Frederick Forrest in this movie? Well, I think we just did. Talking about Apocalypse Now, Jay Chef Hicks. Just passed away in the last uh, two and a half months. Oh. June 23rd to 2023 at the age of 86. Captain Richard Jenko on 21 Jump Street. We're going to move on to episode two. Episode two is titled Murder is a Parlor Game. Is everything a game here? We had word games and now a parlor game. Murder's a parlor game. I'm sorry. I'm waiting for NBC at this point to create a game show version and pair it up with Mind Readers in 1979. Oh, they did do Who Done It? There you go. There's your game show from 1979 that NBC did based around crime. They did Who Done It. But let's be honest, Mike. John Pertwee did it a lot better than Ed McMahon. From what I've heard, yes. But obviously, there's very little footage of Who Done It here. But I believe there's a little bit more of the UK, and also it had a lot longer run in the UK. So I'm not going to disagree with you there. A retired Scotland Yard homicide inspector and author of a bestseller on perfect murders is forced to kill in self defense. I do have a bit of a deeper capsule here for this episode. Uh, a legendary Scotland Yard detective is certain he's committed a second perfect crime when he convinces everybody the death of a cabaret waiter was really a suicide. Except Mrs. Columbo. And again, 
names galore on this, or at least two names. Playing Ian A. Morley on this episode is Donald Pleasance. From the Halloween movies. Among other things. And he played Blofeld in You Only Live Twice. So we have a Bond villain in this. Super. And then, oh gosh, heaven help me here. You know why I'm saying that. I hear Chico laughing in the background. Playing Sergeant Boone in this episode. I'm going to say it the way I want to say it because darn it, we got to keep these jokes fresh. Young Dolph Sweet. <laughs> well, again, we talked about this. He was uh, Chief Carl Kaniski on Give Me a Break. But also, uh, when we talked about him a couple of weeks ago, he played another, not captain, but a, a police type on whatever show that we talked about. And now we're talking about him again playing a sergeant. So I don't want to play the typecasting card, but apparently people love casting Dolph Sweet as police officers and the like. Young Dolph Sweet. Why? I feel bad just acknowledging that. We blame the Tui family for this. We blame not just the Tui family. We blame Don Russ Panini for putting them on that John Morant card. Let's place the blame where it should really go. So there's people who lost the NFLPA license because they suck. I'm sad because now I'm not going to get those Don Russ Holiday sweaters cards anymore. Aww. I don't want to say never say never, but maybe you're not going to get new sweater cards, but there's obviously existing sweater cards you can get on eBay for a price. And, you know, will they hold value? Probably not. I mean, they're very niche but yeah, if you're really expecting a Bryce Young sweater card this year, if you're expecting any Bryce Young cards this year, I'm sorry to tell you, you're sadly mistaken because... Yeah, they're out there. I mean, there's already been a couple of series released, but, uh, you know, once they lost the license and they basically said, you can't sell any more new cards, but we've got these cards in production. We've already made deals uh, selling cases around the country and whatever type of deals they have with Walmart and Target and whatnot. So you may not see many football cards in 2023. They're out there. I've opened a little bit. But uh, you're not going to see like what they've done in previous years where they release 25 or 30 or 35 different series. It may be just like the three or four that are out there now. Recurring Seinfeld character coming. Playing the role of Carmichael, Ian Abercrombie, who played Justin Pitts on seven episodes of Seinfeld. But probably better known, at least to you and me, Greg, as the voice of Chancellor Palpatine slash Darth Sidious on Star Wars The Clone Wars. Fantastic. But wasn't an episode of Voyager with Kate Mulgrew, so there's a thing. Moving on to episode three. Episode three's title is A Riddle for Puppets. Oh great, now we're playing Jackpot. A Riddle for Puppets. Let's just get all the friggin' game show references in this episode. We already had the, the word games, and uh, the last episode we had uh, parlor games. Now we're playing jackpot. What is going on? 
A ventriloquist finds his dummy is acting independently of his will and kills the man who carved it. It's up to Kate Colombo to solve the murder. What the heck? The ventriloquist dummy comes to life and kills. We went from jackpot to child's play all of a sudden. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, just taking a look at my alternate uh, capsule here. Kate Colombo plays a deadly game of cat and mouse with a psychotic ventriloquist who isn't even aware that he caused the death of the craftsman who made his dummy. You big dummy. I just had to say that. I had to do my red fox there. And playing the ventriloquist. If this is not perfect casting, I don't know what perfect casting is. Chico, I want you to say it because this is absolutely beautiful. Jay Johnson! How did he get away from Soap and ABC at this time to do this? A lot of money, probably. Well, also, I think they weren't as uh, possessive over their stars because obviously, hey, let's do more game show references. All the stars from non-ABC shows that were on Family Feud or non-CBS shows that were on Few or whatnot. But yeah, they got a real pro there, Jay Johnson. Please do not tell me that Bob was the dummy that was uh, murdering. No, Bob. You're better than that. <laughs> Bob, how could you? Oh, oh, God. We do have one other pretty big name in this episode playing Victor March is Al Ruscio. And I know we've talked about him in the past. Brotherly Love, one episode. Well, but also, I remember when we talked about Brotherly Love, we brought up another role that he had, which uh, is he was Mr. Carlman in the epic 1995 theatrical release, Showgirls. Hey, did I ever tell you guys that when I did the hardball hot seat, I sat next to Joe Estrahas and I commented to him about how much I love Showgirls? You mention that all the time, Mike. Well, that's my go-to, Okay. Did you guys ever sit next to Joe Estrahas? Did you ever talk to him about Showgirls? No. You would I would No, I don't want to know what you would have done, but oh gosh. Just get it out of your system, Greg. I would have asked him what Kyle McLaughlin's like. Oh. No, <laughs> I don't believe that for a second. I can imagine you, and this is a visual. You go up to Joe Estrahas and say, Elizabeth Berkeley. Huh? Or huh? Elizabeth Berkeley's a fine woman. I would never say a bad thing about her. Elizabeth Berkeley's a trained dancer, good sir. Okay, Gina Gershon. Huh? Or huh? I think that answer is no. No. No, no, no. Okay, I, I'm just curious. How would you grade that? Would you say I, I gave a B performance or a C or or maybe a double D performance? Hey, you know who else was in this episode, Greg? <laughs> you know what else Al Ruscio was in? He was in Previous Entry, Tequila and Benetti. That may be where we talked about him, because that wasn't that long ago. And other Previous Entry, Ferris Bueller! I don't like when my shows yell at me. Sorry. Not your fault. You didn't do that. Hey, you know who else was in this episode? No, who else was in this episode? Michael Durrell. He was in 
22 episodes of Matlock as D.A. Lloyd Burgess and 32 episodes of 90210 as Dr. John Martin. The original, the CW, or the reboot on Fox? The original. And another one of our favorites making a low-key Hall of Fame case playing Aunt Lucy, Erica Yeun. Dina Zekalakis herself from the famous Teddy Z. Oh, I'm sorry. I was taking a look to see if Michael Durrell, uh, his character appeared on the Matlock episode with uh, Max Mom and uh, Twilight Littleton. And the answer is no. Aww. What did Twilight Littleton have in that episode, Mike? I think you're the professional about that. You should ask, you know, did uh, Gina Gerson have the same or did... Next uh, episode, please! Hey! Are they... Huh? Are they... Huh? <laughs> This is called theater to the mind, people, okay? Imagine what I'm talking about when I go, or ha ha. Never thought we'd be talking about breastuses on this episode, did ya? He's saying it, not me. I didn't <laughs> say it. He did. Nobbling this. Right. Episode four. Hey, we don't have a game name here. Caviar with everything. A society caterer. Angry that her husband is divorcing her for her business partner has murder in mind for both. Uh-oh. 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 No, no. That's not Columbo. That's Macmillan and wife. I see what you did there. Darn right I did. I went there. Uh, and again, I, I do have more information about this episode, a, a little bit deeper capsule that may paint a bit of a better picture. When a chic Beverly Hills caterer dies in a bizarre auto accident, Mrs. Columbo uncovers a tangled web of greed, jealousy, and twisted love. We're going to go to episode five. Another kind of sort of uh, game title here, Joy. A puzzle for profits. A husband of a famous psychic is murdered. She's a suspect, but has the perfect witness for her alibi. Mrs. Columbo. Playing Sister Janice. Francine Tacker, known for her roles on The Paper Chase, which, of course, originated on CBS before it moved to Showtime. And then she was in eight episodes of previous entry, O Madeline, as Annie McIntyre. That's the end of season one. Season one was just five episodes. So it went on a little hiatus until October of 1979, and that second season consisted of eight episodes. And we'll start with episode one, uh, number six overall, called Ladies of the Afternoon. Oh, no. I'm afraid of looking at this. Kate has divorced her famous husband, changed her last name back to her maiden name, Callahan, and moved to San Francisco with their girl to work for a new paper. Her first investigation involves a suspect who claims he didn't murder his wife. So I reckon this is what we would call in the business a retooling. I think this is more than a retooling. This is like an entire makeover, because at this point, not only do you have her moving to San Francisco, not only do you have her adopting her maiden name, but also this is where... The Mrs. Columbo name obviously has dropped. So this is apparently the Kate Loves a Mystery era. 
at least for this episode, it's called Kate the Detective. Well, who knows? Again, we've got four names floating around, and who knows from day to day what it's called. And you're actually absolutely right about that, because it looks like Kate Loves a Mystery. It looks like it came into existence or into use like an episode or two later. So you actually have like one or two episodes where this goes by the title of Kate the Detective. It looks like this is the only episode that had the name Kate the Detective. Because A, it's the only listing I see, but also B, uh, I'm looking at an article from October 30th of 1979, which has the name Kate Loves a Mystery, formerly Mrs. Columbo and Kate the Detective. So presumably this is the only episode with that title. All right, couple names of this episode. Playing the role of Phil Stoppard, John Aprea, best known to people of a certain age, that would be the three of us, as Grandpa Nick Katsopoulos from Full House and Fuller House. And I know we've talked about him in the past because uh, that name rings a bell. But I'll look at that. You say the bigger name. Oh, this is a big name. Not big in 1979. Give him about four years. Let me give you the amuse-bouche first, because there is another name here. Playing Janet Rutledge in this episode, D. Wallace. We will be talking about her soon. Okay, now the big name. In the role of uh, Richard Dellinger who just sounds like a villain if you think about it, Ted Danson. Well, hold on. He was a villain in the first episode of Tucker's Witch earlier this year. And I see where we talked about John Apria in the past. He was on an episode of Three's a Crowd and an episode of The Powers of Matthew Starr and an episode of Street Hawk. I don't think he's a high enough caliber person to be in the Hall of Fame, but still... Four episodes. All right, I do have a deeper capsule for this episode because it just gave us the background that she split from Colombo. She moved to San Francisco with her kids. She's working for a new paper. But again, we do have a little bit of a deeper capsule here. A much-honored reporter is slain while she is investigating mob involvement with prominent politicians. Kate's life is threatened when she decides to carry on the investigation. So it isn't just her moving. It's a little bit deeper than that. After these messages, we'll be right back. When I looked at Datsun 280ZX and Porsche 924, I also looked at this new Mazda RX-7. And that's all it took. Just one look. That's all it took. Yeah, just one You get a lot of refined sports car with a Mazda RX-7. You also get great mileage. And you get it all at a price that'll really make you look twice. Yeah, the more you look, hey, the more you like. 
On Sports World, world champion Linda Fradiani pairs champions Ty Babylonia and Randy Gardner, pro superstar JoJo Starbuck, and a spectacular cast give a dazzling exhibition on Starscape. Then Sports World journeys from the fragile grace of figure skating to the awesome root strength of the World Invitational Weightlifting Championships, plus the pressure-packed semifinals of the Legends of Bowling, all next Saturday on Sports World. Where rich man, poor man left off. Irwin Shaw's searing beggar man thief. Gene Simmons and Glenn Ford. He knew her secrets, but he loved her anyway. Andrew Stevens and Tova Felcha. She's a terrorist who uses his love as a weapon. Tom Nolan, out to avenge his father's death. The explosive saga of the Jordash family. Beggar man thief, a world premiere Monday. On Real People, it's the best of the bunnies at the Playmate reunion. Then meet a woman who really gets her point across and visit an Edsel convention. Then a world premiere, better late than never. They're young at heart. She's the old fogey, starring Harold Gould, Harry Morgan, and an all-star cast. Better late than never, right after Real People tonight on NBC. Howard Hessman of WKRP in Cincinnati is profiled in the new issue of TV Guide magazine. On sale now. Chuck Scarborough and New Center 4 tonight at 6 and 11. Back to the show. Episode 7, It Goes with the Territory. After her colleague is murdered, Kate decides to continue the investigation of a shady local elite country club she was working on for the paper at the time of the murder. And we have a name here, and this, I think, is... Again, another low-key Hall of Fame case, but this is a person we have mentioned plenty of times. I'm not even going to get into where we've talked about her. But in this episode, playing Eileen Chambers, B.B. Besh. We've talked about her enough. And to tie it back into Star Trek Day, she played Dr. Carol Marcus in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And I do think we've mentioned that in the past when we've talked about B.B. Besh. Do you know who her daughter is? I do not. Samantha Mathis. Okay. Another name in this episode. Playing Senator Bennett, Peter Donnett. We've talked about him in Voyagers, but we all know him as Bill Mulder, Agent Mulder's daddy on the X-Files. It appears this episode, uh, it goes with the territory, is the first episode that used the name Kate Loves a Mystery. Because again, I mentioned an article from October 30th of 1979 that says Kate Loves a Mystery, formerly known as Kate Colombo or Mrs. Colombo and Kate the Detective. I have the article here and uh, it, it does say that uh, it made its debut a week ago. Kate Loves a Mystery, formerly known as Kate Colombo, Kate the Detective, and Heaven Only Knows What Else, made its debut a week ago last Thursday and proved to be, as they say in Ireland, a bit too wet to plow. In short, it remained the same piece of gooey going as the original entry, which had a short run the latter part of the 1978-79 season. So now it looks like we're in name three, Kate Loves a Mystery. I hope I don't have to map this out for the home audience. This is kind of weird having four different names for a show that ran 13 weeks. Or 13 episodes, I should say. Not 13 weeks. It actually, again, ran over the course of two seasons. We're going to go to episode eight. 
off the record. Kate is working on a murder case investigation with the help of a source she trusts. Well, that's good. You don't want to go to a source you don't trust. The police demands full disclosure from her and arrests her when she refuses to give them the source's name. This is like art imitating life. You don't give up the name of your source, you're held in contempt. You get arrested. Episode 9, The Valley Strangler. Kate is investigating a horrifying series of murders committed by strangulation. Really? That's the capsule. Could you be more generic? Kate is investigating a horrifying series of murders committed by strangulation. And I do see two names in this episode. Playing Howard in this episode is Louis Arquette. We've talked about him plenty. He's like the patriarch of the Arquette family, minus Charlie Weaver. And also playing Judy in this episode is Leanne Hunley. You know Leanne Hunley, right? Yeah. Okay. He was and on I, Dynasty, if I'm not well, mistaken. I, I was just expecting a reaction there. You guys were awfully quiet there. It's like, we know who Leanne Hunley was. She was a halfway attractive woman back in the day. Probably still is. Looks like she is. Episode 10 is titled A Chilling Surprise. The owner of a restaurant is found dead, possibly murdered. Then his body disappears. Kate investigates. Again, whoever's writing these capsules is making this like as generic as possible. I do have a more concise capsule for this instead of sounding like a third grader wrote it. The co-owner of a restaurant mysteriously disappears moments after being fatally stricken, and Kate's investigation makes her suspicious of the man's unfaithful wife and his partner. So it looks like somebody was cooking up some murder of this restaurant owner. Nyuck, nyuck, nyuck. So it looks like there's a name in this episode playing the role of Teddy Faust, Armand DeSante, Big character actor from the 90s and 2000s. He played John Gotti in the 1996 made-for movie Gotti. Played Cesar Castillo in 1992's The Mambo Kings. Played Rico in Judge Dredd from 95. And played Dominic Catano in 2007's American Gangster. Looking at him, I can definitely see John Gotti. He was a better Gotti than John Travolta in that horrible Gotti movie a couple of years ago. He was also on 208 episodes of The Doctors, the soap opera back in the mid-70s. Not The Doctors, I think, the, uh, well, I was going to say, not The Doctors nowadays. I think that finally got canceled. Did it? I don't see it on the TV schedule here for the new season. Huh, I'll well, look into that. But also, I know it's been like hopping all around because it was on in the afternoon, then it was on early morning, then it was on at two in the morning. So maybe Cleveland just didn't pick it up, or maybe after whatever, 15 seasons, it may have just gone away. Yeah, I don't see it on my EBC uh, channel guide, so. I can confirm it aired until August 8th, 2022. Wait! I thought they had episodes this season unless they were pulling like a, a Maury or a Jerry Springer and showing old reruns. They're probably showing old reruns because it was canceled in the spring of 2022. Okay, maybe I'm just like 
having some sort of Mandela effect type of thing because I thought it was still in production. Okay. Regardless, we'll move on to episode 11, which is entitled Falling Star. It's the election season, and Kate wholeheartedly supports one of the candidates for Congress from her district. However, his shady past comes knocking when his associate is murdered and he's the only suspect. Kate is shocked. Can this be? We do have at least one name in this episode that I recognize. Playing Dorothy Hunt in this episode is Sharon Farrell. Sharon Farrell was on 81 episodes of Young and the Restless from 1991 to 1997. I thought she was on in the 70s, though, about 78. The reason why is Sharon Farrell was a celebrity on Match Game in 1978, the week the Star Wheel debuted. She would have been a recurring character on the last few seasons of Hawaii Five-0. I thought I remember her being uh, mentioned as on Young and the Restless at the time, but who knows? But also, I add Sharon Farrell because, sadly, she passed away this past May at the age of 82. Aww. Well, to lighten the mood a bit, I do have another name. Playing William Gartner is David Rash, a.k.a. Sledgehammer. That's great. Also played Agent X in Men in Black 3. For the episode Falling Star, I do have a more complete capsule. The formal girlfriend of a young lawyer on the threshold of a brilliant political career is found dead after threatening to expose how they defrauded an insurance company, and Kate is smitten with the budding politician when she investigates the matter. The second-to-last episode is called Feelings Can Be Murder. Kate is investigating a murder of a woman. The victim was a participant in a sensitivity training group, and her psychologist is a suspect. Among the guests in this episode, we see René Aubergenois again, but playing Arthur in this episode, I love this. Dick Godier, Jaime the Robot on Get Smart. We talked about him previously. He played Robin Hood in When Things Were Rotten. Hold on. Do you remember what episode number that was? Am I walking into a trap? It's a trap! Just say should, the number. Should, no, 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 seriously. Should I be putting Admiral Akbar here because... You want me to say 69? Nice! Okay, like I said, if it's a trap, just tell me, okay? Admiral Akbar is probably going to be like popping up three or four times in the last minute because I saw that trap coming from a mile away. Two miles away. <laughs> 69 miles away, Greg. Nice! You got nice. to do... Dang it. You got to do better than that. Hey, it's kind of appropriate that when things were rotten was episode 69 because they got the shaft from ABC. Good night, everybody. I do have a more complete capsule for this. Beyond a sensitivity training group that she was in, apparently, Kate finds things moving too fast for her when she joins a sex therapy group in an effort to solve the slaying of one of its members. So maybe it wasn't sensitivity training, it was... Maybe a sexual group. Was there a box? What is it with the last, like, two minutes? You make me walk into the 69 trap, and then you're asking if there's a box? 
It's a perfectly cromulent question, Mike. I'm not questioning its cromulency, but did I just invent a word, cromulency? <laughs> I, I, I know cromulent is a, a word or a term, but I think I just created like the adjectival form of cromulent. It's cromulency. Oh boy. Okay, maybe we should just move on to the last episode. Love on instant replay. Kate investigates a case of a murdered young woman. The only suspect is an immigrant who used to be part of a radical underground movement. Sounds like an open and shut case, right? Kate doesn't think so. I've got a few names on this episode. Playing the immigrant in question, man by the name of Zadik Maleshko, Zito Kazan, native of Argentina, played roles in Robin Hood, Men in Tights, 13 Days, Red Dawn, and Waterworld, and one episode of Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23. Hey, you know what 23 times 3 is? 69. Nice. Nice. Math works out very nicely sometimes. I knew you'd get a kick out of that. One thing I want to note about Zito Kazan, you said he was born in Argentina? Mm-hmm. He plays a lot of Russian characters, taking a look at his IMDb. Actually, he plays a whole bunch of different nationalities. I'm taking a look at something from 1978 called The Pirate, where he played a Yemeni captain. And then on an episode of The White Shadow, he played a Russian coach. And obviously you said he is of uh, Argentinian descent, or at least was born in Argentina. But uh, he played Crazy Horse on an episode of Helltown. And in 1990, on something called Why Me, he played a Turkish diplomat. Time out. The show Why Me, did that star Nancy Kerrigan? Oh, God. Ah, ah, oh, I don't know if it's a show or a movie, but the main point I'm getting at is if you look at his IMDb, he plays people of many different nationalities. Again, just looking through this, on 13 Days, he played a Chilean delegate. On Arrested Development, he was a Mexican warden. On The Last Don, he was a Sicilian driver. He played Nick Stavros on an episode of Silk Stockings, so there's Greek. Nick Stavros, he is like multinational. I find that absolutely amazing. Quite versatile. Versatile to say the least. That is amazing. And just about what why me is, a jewel thief steals a sacred ruby which sets off a chase by the police, the Turkish government, nutty American terrorists, and the CIA. Sounds like uh-oh before uh-oh. Did you just... Okay, Susan, get it out of your system. Uh oh. Uh oh. And then we have, as an investigator, early role for Bo Billingsley, who was in 30 episodes of Just Jordan, five episodes of Franklin and Bash as Judge James Douglas, but known mostly as the voice of Jet Black on Cowboy Bebop. The really good animated version, not the mid-Netflix series. You know, I don't think we need to actually ask this regarding why this series didn't work, especially when it goes through four names, four titles in the span of 13 episodes. But what happened? 
boy, where could we start about what happened? I mean, obviously, we could look at the ratings. We can look at the schedule. And we're going to do both of those. I have a quote from Peter Falk if you want to hear it. Oh, I'd love to hear a Peter Falk quote, especially since he doesn't really acknowledge this as uh, canon. To put it quite blunt, he says, it was a bad idea. It was disgraceful. Well, now let's remember, we're talking about 1979 and we're talking about NBC and we've talked about it in the past. NBC is throwing whatever they can at the wall and seeing what sticks. And actually, I should have asked Greg at the start of the show, and I'm not going to ask him to do it now, how many shows we've talked about from 1979 that aired on NBC? Because I bet you the number has to be close to a, a dozen now. I could look. Well, you don't have to if you don't want to, but the number's got to be up there. It's got to be at least a dozen. That's why I said it's got to be at least 12. And while Greg looks at that, I do have the schedule. For the premiere, the two-hour movie, it aired from 9 to 11. At that point, on ABC, you had How the West Was Won for the entire two hours. But unfortunately, I don't think you're beating the lineup on CBS for a number of reasons. For three specifically, albeit the first two are better reasons. Nine o'clock, you had MASH. So this was the eighth season of MASH. So it's still going strong at this point. This is when MASH starts getting very, very dark. And then at 9.30, it went up against WKRP in Cincinnati. So that would be the first season of WKRP in Cincinnati. And then at 10 o'clock for the entire hour, it went up against Lou Grant. Sorry, you're not beating MASH. You're not beating WKRP in Cincinnati, and you're not beating Lou Grant. Okay, I did the count. We've done eight shows from NBC in 1979. This is the eighth. Only eight? I'm genuinely surprised we've only done eight. Okay, let me count. Legends of the Superheroes, Brothers and Sisters, Turnabout, Hello Larry! Super Trade, Mind Readers, and Season 1 of The Facts of Life. I do uh, have the schedule for the second episode. It did move to Thursday nights at 10 o'clock after Quincy. So, I mean, it's got a decent time slot. What it follows is a great show. I mean, Quincy at this point, I think, would have been third season, if not third season, second season. So it had a good lead in. But on ABC, it went up against Family which is pretty big back in 1979, but also on CBS. A little bit tougher competition, albeit in its penultimate season. Barnaby Jones. You're not beating Buddy Epps. You're not beating Lee Merriweather. You're not beating that sweet-ass theme song. You're not beating a Quinn Martin production. I do have some weekly ratings Primarily from the second season, looking at the ratings from Thanksgiving week of 1979, so we're talking November 19th through the 25th, out of 59 shows, it came in at 48th. So we're looking at 
bottom 20% essentially. It did beat some more notable shows, specifically The Ropers, A Man Called Sloan, and then a lot of specials and stuff I've never heard of. They had a Raggedy Ann and Andy special, a two-part special that ranked 52nd and 58th. Huh? But again, it is the holiday season, so I understand why they did that. If we look two weeks earlier, the week of November 4th, out of 66 shows, it ranked 52nd. Another Raggedy Ann special was 54th. What type of specials were they doing with Raggedy Ann back in 1979? And the Ropers came in 57th that week, and Salvage won. This must have been one of those two episodes, because they only aired the the two-hour movie, I think, in two separate parts, if not just one part. Salvage won for that week, came in 61st. So there you go. That may explain why Salvage One only had the one or two airings for its second season before ABC said, we're not going to have any of this. So I have the ratings for the week between those two weeks. I'm talking November 5th and November 11th. Out of 62 shows, this is not good. 56th. And actually, here's Salvage One again, so this must be the second part of the two... uh, part season premiere slash season two episodes that aired salvage one was 59th and last but not least the week after thanksgiving november 6th to december 2nd how low can we go out of 62 shows 56th so again we are now looking at bottom 10 percent of the ratings no wonder it didn't survive And actually, at 58, there was a tie between Shirley, which I noticed had similarly low ratings, and the Ropers, again, similarly low ratings, and Marie, which I believe was the variety show with Marie Osmond back in the day. So it definitely was not good, at least in season two. Maybe they thought, as we mentioned earlier, retooling after season one, maybe we'll get viewers. Obviously, that wasn't the case. But this show did have life after NBC. A little rerun life. Looking at TV listings from 1991, A&E actually aired Mrs. Columbo at 10 in the morning. Listen to this lineup. This is not an A&E lineup from 2023. This is amazing. Because remember, back in the day, A&E was sort of high class, high brow. You had Mrs. Columbo at 10 a.m. You had The Fugitive at 11. You had David Letterman at noon. At one, you had The Avengers. And then actually you had repeats of all the minus Mrs. Columbo from five to eight. The good old days of A&E. Because I remember, and I don't think Greg necessarily would and Chico might not have, I remember the David Letterman reruns on A&E back in the day. You're talking about reruns of late night, right? Yeah, it isn't like what they did like 15, 20 years ago where it was like next day reruns. It was like actually going back in the archive and showing an episode from 82 or 83. Like a best of. Well, speaking of life after reruns, 
this show did get a proper home media release in France. But if you cannot be bothered to learn French, the episodes are available in their entirety on our good friends at Tubi. Uh, as we all know, Tubi will air any old crap. But also, I do want to add that there's a fan site for Kate Mulgrew, totallykate.com, and they have a lot of material regarding Mrs. Columbo and Kate Loves a Mystery. Screen grabs, photos, episode guides, advertisements, articles, even Kate Mulgrew's press kit biography. And that's for both Mrs. Columbo and for Kate Loves a Mystery. So if you go to totallykate.com, do a little bit of digging, you can find out a lot more about this show than what we've covered. Like I said, I'm looking at the Mrs. Columbo part, and there is a variety review. There's an American film article. Again, TV Guide advertisements. And then for the Kate Loves a Mystery part, Again, more advertisements, uh, another American film article, and uh, another variety review. So it's out there, as much as maybe Peter Falk doesn't acknowledge it, and maybe even to a lesser extent, Kate Mulgrew doesn't. Because again, she's Captain Janeway. We don't need to talk about what she did before hopping on the Voyager. After all, the original creators of Columbo were quite adamant that they disliked the concept from the start. And frankly, word of God states that the Mrs. Columbo that we actually saw in Kate Mulgrew was never the Mrs. Columbo that Peter Falk was married to. Despite a lack of acknowledgement from Peter Falk and the writers of the Columbo franchise, Kate Loves a Mystery, a.k.a. Mrs. Columbo, a.k.a. many other names... It was just a thing on TV. But, hey, since this is the Star Trek Day episode, do you want to play a Star Trek Day-themed eBay Prices Right? Well, I think we need to now that you've mentioned it. So you guys know, back in episode 400, that I'm starting to collect the Star Trek autographed cards of people we talked about on this podcast. We did an eBay Prices Right a couple of weeks ago for the Robert Hooks card you talked about. That's right. So, for the Star Trek A episode, I got this Rittenhouse Star Trek The Next Generation Auto from 2013. Now, remember that, 2013, and it's an autograph of Norman Lloyd. You are most honorable, Norman Lloyd. I was the only bidder on this item. I bidded on this last minute last week, and I got it yesterday. So I'm like, I'll start the bidding with you. What did I pay for this? Gosh, I mean, Norman Lloyd is a legend. And he lived to be a hundred and what, hundred six, hundred seven? Yeah, he, yeah. Oh, he, he was amazing. Gosh, I hope you got a deal on this. I'm gonna say you paid twelve dollars. Chico, one dollar, Drew. The price I paid for this nine ninety five. 
You got a deal. Oh my god. You made out like a bandit, my friend. That is great. Now I'm actually going to look for one on eBay. If I can find one for $10, that's a definite purchase for me. And there is also in that same set an autographed card from Ellen Bree. So you have one quarter of the Scene Elsewhere panel from the Match Game Hollywood Squares Hour featured in this set. Is that really going to be your takeaway? <laughs> one quarter of the Match Game Hollywood Squares panel from uh, St. Elsewhere Week has autographed trading cards in this series. Yes. It's a bit of a weird cut, but I'll accept it. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. But please remember, you can always go to our website over at itwasthethingontv.com where you can listen to the 406 episodes that preceded this one. We've got all sorts of great bonuses there, including live shows, mini-sodes, extended versions of previous episodes. We have it all. And remember, we're on all social media, including Instagram, Mastodon, Threads, at It Was The Thing On TV, except for Facebook, where we are at It Was The Thing On TV podcast. Please remember, if you're not subscribed to us through your favorite podcast service, you can find us everywhere. Uh, you can find us at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio, Audible. Any reliable podcast app should have us. And don't forget, we are on YouTube where you can like and subscribe to our channel. And don't forget to hit that notification bell to stay informed of all future uploads on the channel, including what's coming up next time on the podcast. But before I do that, before we talk about what's coming up next, I can officially say what I teased about two weeks ago. I said sometime in the next presumably month or so, six weeks, there would be some big national thing. And the podcast will be mentioned, and uh, I'm expecting an influx of literally tens of listeners. Well, maybe hundreds or thousands if we're lucky, but back on July 31st, so we're talking five weeks ago from today, I took part in a taping of Person, Place, or Thing where I was a super fan. And we talked about the podcast, myself and uh, Melissa Peterman. Absolute doll, by the way. Please watch Person, Place, or Thing. Great show. I received word earlier this week about when that episode is going to air, and that episode is slated to air on September 26th. So we're talking three weeks from tomorrow. 26th of September, you'll see me on Person, Place, or Thing, and give a little shout out to not just the podcast, but also to Greg and to Chico. And it was fun. It was interesting watching it, the, the behind the scenes. I can't say what happened at this point. It's good to get a little bit of a word out there for our little podcast. I mean, we're not making any money on this. So look out for that in the next three weeks. But yeah, next time. Oh my gosh. Greg, I know, has stuff to say. We're going to talk about something that just happened last year. But it might have been one of the most atrocious football games in recent NFL history. And we're going to talk about that because, hey, surprise, the NFL season is starting on Thursday. So how appropriate is that? We're going to talk football to start the new NFL season. And we will talk about that atrocity from last year right here at It Was a Thing on TV. As always, thank you for listening. 
We'll catch you on Thursday with that new episode. Wow! Wednesday on Mrs. Columbo, when Kate joins a sex therapy group to find a killer, things move a bit too fast for her. Hi. Welcome to the Passion Pit. Thank you. This is a good spot right here for you. I'm sure the police will find that the killer is a member of that group. Mr. Kano, is there... Wednesday at 8 on TV 58.